It is another marked privilege we have this Lord's Day evening to come together on an occasion like this one. And as I look over the audience to see not only many of our number here at Pippin who have been able to be with us this evening, perhaps health a bit on the better side, which is certainly a glorious and wonderful thing, but we're blessed with so many visitors who've come our way this evening, and for that we're so very appreciative and thankful. And as was mentioned already by Brother Lester in the announcements, we certainly want to extend to each and every one a cordial invitation to be back with us at any and every opportunity that you might have to be with us. We concluded last Lord's Day evening a series of studies on the book of Revelation, the last book in the Holy Word of God. And this evening, as we look somewhat briefly at an extenuation of the lesson we began this morning, we will look interestingly at the message that Gabriel delivered to Mary. That was read in our hearing just a few moments earlier from Luke, the opening chapter. And it is back to that chapter I would invite your attention as we draw a few points from that text and use that to aid ourselves in striving to be more pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. By way of introduction, it would certainly be fair to notice that this season of the year, it is not unusual to be made aware of various nativity scenes and other factors that call our attention to the birth of our Savior. And just as certainly as we noted those matters this morning, we can appreciate the fact that we should dwell upon that more than just a day or two out of the season and out of the year. Some of the things that we'll study this evening are truly eternal in magnitude. To the extent that what Gabriel had to say to Mary not only captured her attention, and no doubt Joseph's as well as much of this was delivered to him also, but oh how it captures our attention still today. In part, that can be seen by the number of those who are able to present plays and other things in which these verses are quoted. Other things in where nativity scenes take place and these matters are directly portrayed and played out directly in view. This is still a captivating scene. It never loses the character of its greatness. It never loses the power that it has within it. Some of those things, of course, that we shall see tonight have to do with matters that by themselves are not able to occur, for they require the working and overruling providence of the God of heaven. A few comments that I made just at the bottom of that screen. As we look at these remarkable matters that Gabriel revealed, might we also notice that Mary's conception partly was what was major under discussion. With those things stated, could we go ahead and notice the first of our points for this evening? Looking at what she was told. As Gabriel appeared to her, we notice that first of all, her attention was riveted upon the fact, of course, that the life within her was to be a magnificent one in the sense that she herself, of course, was a virgin. Now that alone raises a number of dramatic questions. And I've tried to present some thoughts to lead us through many of these. First of all, could we make note of the following? We are expressly told in the verse before us, verse number 27, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and, of, and the virgin's name was Mary. This young lady, this woman named Mary, was engaged, if you will. She was betrothed. In that particular day and time, the actual completion of the marriage ceremony had not taken place. The specifics of the way that weddings were done then differ considerably from those that take place today. On that occasion in time, it was not unusual for, in fact, the families to make some kind of arrangements or for, in some ways, the wedding to, to be made arrangements for that quite some time before it actually took place. 
And this occasion, it would seem that something like that may well have taken place. At any rate, they were already engaged. However, they had not lived together yet. That was waiting until the time when that marriage feast, if you will, was completed and the finality was done in which the groom would go to the bride and bring her to his house in the final statement, if you will, of the official marriage. They had not lived together yet. Again, she was called a virgin. Those words are all the more interesting when, after Gabriel made note to her that she would bring forth a child, she was as astounded as anyone else. For notice the question that she asked, specifically later in that text in verse 34. She said, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She understood well the natural physical progress in which a child is born to a woman who has known a man. Having never been in such a position, she naturally was wondering as to how the words of the angel could ever be true, at least at this point in her life. Seeing I know not a man. That reminds us of other texts in the Bible in which wording not unlike that is used when it says, for example, that Adam knew his wife Eve and shortly thereafter she conceived and bare a little bit later Cain and Abel. This interesting part then leads us to directly say, in terms of what takes place before us, she had not known a man in a sexual way. As such, we remember Joseph was a bit troubled, and naturally so. Here was the woman to whom he was engaged, and yet she is now pregnant, and it's not by him. Joseph knew very well that he was not the father of the baby that she was carrying. However, that did not stop the angel Gabriel from delivering to her some of the grandest news that a lady could ever have heard. Notice what else is in fact stated. She would bear a son. Notice with me that language again. Verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. By its very nature, what the angel now told her was physically impossible. A woman cannot bear a child apart from knowing a man. In terms of the natural order in that day and time, it simply was impossible. And yet, that's what Gabriel told her. No wonder she was so amazed and thus stated, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And yet, and yet, she dutifully and responsibly listened to all the things the angel had to say. And doesn't that remind us yet today of the miraculous nature of the birth of our Savior? Verse 35 perhaps encapsulates it so powerfully. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the high shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit was the critical element or factor in the involvement of the conception of Mary, in the fact that she became pregnant, and as such she knew not a man. It is perhaps not shocking to notice that there have been some who have called this very matter into question. In fact, in a recent poll taken in our land, overwhelmingly many will certainly state their belief in the fact of the virgin birth of our Savior. But yet, amazingly, 7% of Christians surveyed, and I said Christians, or at least that's what they'd call themselves, 7% said they did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. It was a myth some kind of very nice story concocted by someone a long time ago. They didn't believe it. 
In fact, not too many years ago, again, in one of the various seminaries around our world, where the great learning of the Bible supposedly take place, there, well over 35% of those polls said they did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And yet those are the very ones teaching the students in those places. Absolutely astounding, isn't it? Yet we are here told very clearly that Mary was a virgin. Now some have quickly stated that word virgin just means she was a young maid, not meaning that she had not had sexual contact. Friend, that's not what that word means. In fact, Isaiah 7 verse 14 is quoted by Matthew and applied to her. And in that text of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Alma is employed. And it directly means a lady virgin. That is to say, a woman having not had sexual contact. Mary was a virgin. In fact, not only did that prophecy in Isaiah point directly to the coming of the Christ, for no other person was ever born in such a way. There's another Old Testament text as well that addresses the same point. In Jeremiah 31, verse 22, even the prophet Jeremiah foretold the day when a woman would compass a man. Now, how would a woman compass a man and yet bring forth life? It couldn't be done naturally. It would only have to be done by virtue of the miraculous character of the God of heaven. Mary was a virgin, and yet she would bring forth into the world this one who we're about to discuss in the next point. What else was she told? Again, verse number 31. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the name of the baby was given? Joseph and Mary both. On another occasion, Joseph was told what the little baby boy was to be named, and it was not Joseph. You and I are fairly accustomed in that day and time to the baby boys were named after their father. Wasn't that the expected truth, for instance, in the case of John the Baptist? When in fact, his birth came to pass. We might remember that Zacharias had been struck dumb for quite some time because he had expressed a degree of disbelief in the fact that his aged wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son. However, when the time came that Elizabeth brought forth the son, the friends and neighbors were expecting the boy to be named after his father. Upon taking a writing tablet, Zechariah said his name is John. On this occasion, notice that the name of the baby was given, Jesus. What does that word mean? It is a name, of course, you and I celebrate often in song. We see employed so frequently in the scriptures. Might it be noted for us that that word Jesus simply means Savior. Perhaps more carefully it means Yahweh saves. That word Yahweh again, a reference to the name of God Himself, God saves. How appropriate for that to be the name of the baby. Isn't it amazing and wonderful both at the same time to consider the gloriousness of this name and how that, that name carries forth to us such a beautiful thought and ring even until this day? Now it certainly would be fair to note that the Greek word that's employed on this occasion, Jesus, is actually the same one that is occurring as Joshua, other places in the Bible. But let us carefully distinguish. There was only one incarnate Son of God. There were other individuals in the Bible by the name of Joshua. That's true. For instance, that successor to Moses in the Old Testament, his name was Joshua. No doubt the greatest of the unsung heroes of the Old Testament. 
And yet, he, of course, was very different than Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. Notice also in Colossians, the fourth chapter, another reference to a person whose name looked very similar to Jesus's. In fact, the express verse is Colossians 4, verse 11. But, might we remember, Jesus, this one to whom we refer, the very Son of God, He is the one that Yahweh saves from sin. He is the one through whom God is able to call men into Himself and to offer to them the pardon from the sins that cloud their life and separate them from Him. That's the glory and wonder of that name. But what's more? Quite often we notice Jesus Christ. Now we notice the word Christ does not directly occur in this text, but it shall not be too long before it shall. That word Christ is merely the New Testament form of the Old Testament word Messiah. M-E-S-S-I-A-H. That anointed one of God that was foretold and prophesied to come, and the one for whom the Jews so much longed and so much yearned. The very nature of these names clearly indicate the greatness that this life was to have. This Jesus was to be the one who would save his people from their sins. Joseph was told that directly in Matthew 1.21. Call him Emmanuel, God with us, for he shall save his people from their sins. You and I can't turn to the man named Joshua of the Old Testament or to that gentleman mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, but to the Son of God we can. How wonderful is that name, the gloriousness to be seen in it. We might notice, interestingly, one further point that we alluded to briefly before. The fact that he was not called Joseph or named after Joseph does remind us that he was not Joseph's physical son. Again, God was his father. The Holy Spirit conceived him. And as such, he was called Jesus Again, he would save his people from their sins. These thoughts perhaps lead us to note how great that name was. You and I today still celebrate the name of Jesus. How many times in the Bible does that word appear? How many songs in our songbook, in fact, laud and magnify the name of Jesus? In Acts 11 verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That was the name given to all those who would be disciples and followers of Him. It is, of course, based on the word Christ and add I-A-N to it. Or in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, the fact that you and I could even glorify God in this name. And we certainly should not forget the gloriousness of that Philippian hymn in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will indeed come a time when every individual, though they may not have done so in life, they certainly will at that point understand how great the name of Jesus is. And they will then wish so desperately and sorely that they had devoted their attention to magnifying that name. That's some of what Gabriel told Mary. But let us yet consider what else she was told. In addition to these points, again in verse number 32, He shall be great. He shall be great. Isn't it interesting to think about a newborn? 
and the fact that the parents wish perhaps and have the greatest of incentives and plans for the greatness of that life, how it will affect and influence others for nobility and good, what great things that baby boy or baby girl will grow up to accomplish in life. All parents, I suspect, think about, ponder, think about those matters from time to time. But notice, she was directly told by Gabriel, he, this life that is forming in you will be great. I wonder what Mary thought on that occasion. In what way would he be great? The angel quickly would answer portions of those questions. But notice some of the things that may come to you and me. There is certainly a sense in which all of us, being born of God, have an element of greatness within us. For we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are not the products of evolution. We did not come about by blind chance. We did not arrive by circumstantial happenstance. We were specifically created by the all-powerful, almighty God of heaven. And as such, He had a plan for you and me. He did for Jeremiah. In fact, of Jeremiah, he said, I've known thee from the womb. In Psalm 139, David lauded the fact that from again the womb, God had plans for him to accomplish. You and I are, of course, known of God in that sense and in that way. Isn't it fair to say that here this statement that Jesus is great could by some be taken to be nothing particularly special? But might I submit to you, in light of what that life became to be, and in light of what he has meant to you and me and countless thousands of others for 2,000 years now, oh, how great that life was. Many years ago, a little statement, I really wouldn't call it a poem, but a little paragraph, if you will, was composed. Perhaps each of us have read it from time to time, but I thought it appropriate to share it again. In light of the greatness of Jesus, think about these words with me, if you would. It's entitled, One Solitary Life. He was born in an, in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things that one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He suffered through the mockeries of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothes, the only clothes he had on this earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have now come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the entire human race. The leader of mankind's progress is this one. In fact, as this particular statement closes, it closes with these words. All the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as this one solitary life. And to that we'd say a hearty amen. For in fact, think of what Jesus has impacted through the centuries by virtue of His greatness and the offering of salvation through His name. It is something to ponder, isn't it? When God allowed Himself 
His only begotten Son, to take the form of human flesh by that name of Jesus and as such to set before us the ideal example and to bring into play the very gospel of His Son. Indeed, what a great life His was. That greatness is perhaps seen in many other ways. Old Testament prophets had predicted the greatness. New Testament statements affirm it. I listed some on the screen for you to consider. Isn't it a tragedy in light of this fact when there are so many who refuse to submit to the greatness of Jesus? They live their life in open defiance of all that he stood for. They, in fact, thumb their nose at his gospel. They pretend as though the church is meaningless and they have nothing good to think about the character of the gospel. Is it not sad to think about a life based upon something other than the goodness of Jesus, the greatness thereof, and the eternity that they shall suffer in torment because of it. Oh, the greatness that is to be seen. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the foolish shall fall therein. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Hosea in Hosea 14, verse 9. Not only the greatness of Jesus' name seen, notice what else Mary was told. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 32, He shall be called the Son of the Highest. It may be that in your Bible the word highest begins with a capitalized letter. Capital H-I-G-H-E-S-T. That word highest means most high and is a reference to God Himself. As a quick perusal of several scriptures will easily affirm, there are over 50 times in the Bible when that phrase most high and God are stated to be equivalent. I've listed just a few for your consideration. Psalm 83 verse 18, Psalm 92 verse 8, Daniel 4 verse 17, just to name a few. We are here specifically told then that Gabriel said to Mary, this one in you will be the Son of God, Son of the Highest. And immediately, don't you know that she at the same time was very fearful and also very joyful. Hebrew women for centuries had longed for the time that the Christ child, the anointed one, the Messiah, would be born. And they no doubt hoped that it would be them. After all, we knew that this one would be through the lineage of Abraham. We learn in the book of Ruth that it would be through the lineage of David. However, the Old Testament does not give us many more details about this specific line through whom he would come. There is a hint in Zechariah that it would be through Zerubbabel as well. And yet, when we come to the time, Mary was of the lineage of David. She was thus of the lineage of Abraham. And so too was Joseph. She was the chosen one. Many a woman, no doubt, had hoped she would be able to give birth to the one. But it would be Mary. She was told that she would be the one to bring him into the world. In Luke one thirty-five, note again with me. Jesus was and is the Son of God. He did not forfeit his divinity. He did not forfeit his deity when he took the form of human flesh. It was God in the flesh. More than once we saw folks bow before him and worship and never did Jesus correct them. Never. He freely accepted their worship because it was his right to be worshipped because he was God. In 1 John 5 verses 19 and 20 we're expressly told Jesus is God. May we thus appreciate Son of the Highest reminded Mary, and it does us too, 
God stepped into the form of human flesh by allowing Jesus to take that form. No wonder the incarnation is such a dramatic event. It only happened once. It shall not happen again. And the great things that were set before us reminded us that that incarnation was about to reach its fruition. What else was it that Mary was told? Notice that in verse number 32, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. This one that was to be born of her was to reign upon David's throne. Admittedly, it may be a bit difficult for you and me to fully appreciate to a Jew what that would have meant. However, by reading the scriptures, we can come to at least understand a degree of it. The reign of David and Solomon in the Old Testament was the glorious golden age of Israelite history. They had victory over their enemies. The empire was rich and wealthy. God was on their side, at least in the main. However, once the kingdom was split, there were a few good kings along the way like Josiah and Hezekiah and perhaps Asa. However, the vast majority were wicked and the kingdom suffered mightily. For they turned their back upon the God who loved them, and thus God allowed them to be taken captive. He allowed them to be oppressed. Remember, the Babylonian captivity stood in their future from that point. However, they always wished the Jews did for a time when again their kingdom would be great, when it would be mighty and led by one who was appreciative of an association with God. Mary was told this one is going to sit again on the throne of David. It'll be a golden age of greatness and understanding association with God. You see, it was the very hope that many had longed for. In our lesson this morning, we noted Simeon. When he came and took the baby Jesus and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. I've seen thy salvation. The greatness of Israel was about to return. Anna, she thanked God for him. For she again also apparently had some degree of recognition of the greatness of this baby. You see, he would be the son of the highest and he would reign on David's throne. Some of the things that I've given us to consider, notice especially in verse 32, it says that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David. Jesus didn't gain this throne by military conquest. He didn't assemble an army and go out and defeat all of those surrounding Palestine. In fact, when the people of Judea tried to make him king, he refused it in John chapter 6. And later on, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, Are you a king? Jesus said, You say I am. But notice, it was not a physical kingdom. He said, If I were a king as you say, my servants would fight. Notice, Jesus' servants didn't fight. In fact, when Peter did draw a sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, Jesus healed it and rebuked Peter. May we thus remember the fact that he reigning upon this throne of David, it was not a kingdom like the Jews expected. It was not a military kingdom where there would be great ivory thrones and literal men reigning on them. This was a spiritual kingdom. And this kingdom would be one, as we see so quickly stated, would be filled with splendor and filled with great magnificence. For in fact, notice how that same thing continues in verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. We see another Old Testament reference. We've already noted a bit about the references to David. Now Jacob is mentioned. 
notice he, of course, is the grandson of Abraham. And in light of that fact, we notice that Jacob himself was the father of 12 tribes, if you will, or those through whom 12 tribes came. But is it not true in regard to Jacob that he was often stated to be one of those great patriarchs as well? Mary was told, this baby, this boy that you will bear, he will reign over the house of Jacob. Again, all the promises of the Old Testament are converging to come to fulfillment in the character of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The New Testament affirms for us mightily that that kingdom came to pass. And the Lord does reign upon that kingdom. In fact, a little-known prophecy in Amos points to that very fact. In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and following, the prophet Amos directly foretold that the tabernacle of David would again exist. It had not been forgotten by God. And later in the New Testament, that text in Amos was quoted in Acts the 15th chapter and applied to the very church of our Lord. The church is the fulfillment of that kingdom. It is the spiritual Israel of this day. The book of Romans and the book of Galatians frequently make mention of calling the church God's spiritual Israel. Just as we noted this morning in our Bible study class, the goodness and the glory of how that the blessings of God through Abraham lead us to say we are the children of God by faith and thus the seed of Abraham. We see that seed approached in a different perspective as we also notice we are of the household of Jacob. We are the very ones who are members of spiritual Israel, great citizens in that glorious kingdom. Thus we notice that though that very throne of David had been vacant for many centuries, Mary's boy... This little baby was to grow up and to reign on that throne. Maybe that leads us to notice one final comment. And then that will draw our lesson tonight to its conclusion. You might notice in verse number 33 I said, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And as if you and I were not able to understand that word forever, the verse closes by saying, And of his kingdom there shall be no end. At this point, we again can pause to ponder that the kingdoms of the Old Testament had risen and fallen. They had many times come to be great and then waned away into dissolution. That's the way human kingdoms are, aren't they? The great Greek kingdom had risen to prominence under Alexander the Great and then defeated by the Romans. The Roman kingdom had arisen and it too has now long since passed into the dustbins of history. The same could be said of the Babylonian kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, and on and on the list will go. But isn't it amazing? Mary was told, the kingdom over which this one, your baby, is going to reign, this boy whom you're going to bear, the kingdom over which he reigns, it will never, I repeat, never cease to be an eternal kingdom, an everlasting one that shall persist and persevere and continue onward, and of course, you and I have already alluded to the specifics of that point. Daniel had prophesied in Daniel the second chapter, verse 44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That was that occasion when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream and saw the image of various metallic parts, and the stone made without hands crushed the image in its feet area. Notice, it was in that context that he said the days of these kings, the kings represented by the feet area of that image, when they're reigning, God will set up a kingdom, and that kingdom will never be destroyed. Mary told the one reigning over this kingdom, 
the kingdom will never cease to be. Isn't it wonderful that you and I are now living some 20 centuries beyond that time? And the very words that Gabriel told Mary can still ring in our ears. And the kingdom that was established then is still going strong. It's true, the church has met its difficult times. There was a need for a reformation and then a restoration following that. But the church never ceased to be, and it shall continue. Until that golden, glorious day when, as eternity stands before all of us, the Savior hands the kingdom over to God, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Those kinds of thoughts remind us that even Jesus stated in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Satan tried hard to thwart the establishment of the kingdom. He tried with great power and might to bring it to dissolution before it ever started. Revelation chapter 12 described that as the woman gave birth to the child. Remember the devil, the dragon, is ready to kill the boy, the baby child, before it ever got started. But he failed. Rather, the kingdom came to be established just exactly as the prophets had said it would. And even today, that kingdom again is the very one of which you and I are a part. It is a glorious thought to consider. And yet, as Gabriel revealed these things to Mary, you and I are truly the beneficiaries of them. For you and I can appreciate all that Jesus came to do and all that he came to be. Would it not be fair to summarize a few of these points in these words? First, in light of what we've learned this evening, or that of which we've been reminded, how great indeed is the character of Christ. Great indeed would be the life that boy would live. Great indeed would be the impact he would have on multiplied billions for centuries. As we noted in that little statement, I made one solitary life. But not only that, he was born of a virgin. Those scholars and supposedly learned intellectuals may question that fact. The scriptures have stated it, and it is a fact. Furthermore, we learned that he was and is the Son of God. And thus, when we pray to God, we should pray through him, 1 John 3, 22 and following. And as we do pray in that fashion and in that way, that leads us to think about the latter too. As a son of the highest, he would occupy the great throne of David. This evening, have you humbly submitted your life then to him? Is it such that these words to Gabriel still ring true in each of us as well as we think about how great Christ was and how great we can be if we will just allow him to work through us? Remember that he told each of us that you can do nothing apart from me, John 15, 5. Rather, he calls all of us to come to him. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Tonight, do you need to become a Christian? Perhaps you've never been baptized and thus been able to wear the name Christ because that name has not been given to you yet. The New Testament affirms that that can be accomplished as you believe in Jesus. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His glorious name as the only begotten Son of God, and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could aid you to do that tonight, it'd be our privilege. If, however, you have been a Christian at some point, but have not been true to the promises that Gabriel revealed to Mary, come back to that first love. There's an audience of people here and a host of angels in heaven that would be excited to rejoice over your recommitment to the cause of Jesus. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, we implore you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.